His and Hers, Memories of My Parents, an essay by Matt Ruby. That's me. So my mother and father have both passed away, but here's a collection of some memories I have from growing up with them. She took me to see the Dirty Dancing live tour after the movie came out. I'm not sure why she thought I would enjoy it, but she brought me. And we showed up early and I was bored and kind of had no idea why I was there. And that's when she taught me about people watching. She told me to look at all the people walking by and to imagine what their lives were like. She said, look at how they're dressed and how they talk to each other. The show has already begun. I always remembered that. Nothing was more important to him than air conditioning. If he came home and it wasn't on and it was hot, he'd lose it. Maybe this was because he was a tank commander in the Israeli army back, I think, in the late 1950s or so. I imagine him sitting in the desert in one of those metal boxes, just hot as an oven, slowly reaching his boiling point and promising himself that one day I'm going to move to America, find a wife and settle down in a house where I'll have my children turn on the air conditioner every day an hour before I arrive so I come home to a cool breeze. And then he turned that mirage into a reality. One time, the whole family was eating dinner at a restaurant, and she got drunk and told us how she once had an abortion. We just stared at her. He tried to stop her as it was happening, too, but his way of stopping her was to just roll his eyes and just go, Francis. It was not effective. One time, he had dinner with Eleanor Roosevelt. Later on, he worked as an assistant DA in New York City alongside Rudy Giuliani back when Rudy was, you know, relatively sane. I asked him about Rudy once, and he said, that guy will do anything for cameras. Just seems truer and truer as time goes on. She met Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. Joseph Campbell was one of her professors. She knew Allen Ginsberg, Lou Reed, Gregory Corso, and many other underground luminaries. A girl I dated once called her the Forrest Gump of the 60s art world. Though she was immersed in the counterculture back in that time, she eventually decided to run away from that life. Because if you're deep inside the underground, I guess nothing's more against the grain than embracing conventional domesticity. To her, moving to the suburbs and having kids was the ultimate act of transgression. She had an overbearing mother. They didn't talk for years, but eventually made up. After that, her mother would come visit us in the suburbs every couple of months and bring bagels and locks from Zabar's. But even as a child, I could sense there was tension in the air. That said, the bagels were pretty good. He had an overbearing mother, too. She would visit every August and stay with us for a month. It was the only time each year I would hear him speak Hebrew. I asked him if he was worried about forgetting it, and he responded, You never forget your mother tongue. Maybe because they both had overbearing mothers, they bonded over that and a desire to mostly be left alone. One time she asked me if I wanted to go see Guns of the Trees, a 60s movie that she acted in when it was playing at an art house cinema in New York. I was probably around 12 or so, and I asked her, do I have to? And she said no, so we didn't go. But I always felt bad about that, and years later I found a place online where I could order the film. It's avant-garde and a bit head-spinning, but you can see how it was cutting edge at the time. And in it, she plays a depressed woman who commits suicide. 
He had an elaborate model train set up in the basement, the kind you'd see in like model railroad magazines. Seems like the perfect activity for a little kid to do with his dad, right? Well, actually I never played with the trains. I can't recall if it's because he didn't offer or because I just didn't like them. He used to spend tons of free time down in the basement working on those trains though. It was interesting though, after both his kids were out of the house, he never worked on the trains again. <laughs> so now I guess I gotta wonder, did he really love trains or did he just want a reason to be in the basement? She told me she often dreamed of being invisible as a child. But her big fear with that was that one day she might go see a movie and someone would sit on her. She also told us about going to camp and how one of the other girls there would constantly tell moron jokes. Why did the moron tiptoe past the fridge? Answer, because there was a little Russian dressing. <laughs> he always found those jokes delightful. And I always found them interesting because I think moron jokes were just what you called them before they were Polish jokes. And now they're probably not even Polish jokes anymore. He loved getting mail, and I mean, he really loved it. There was always a letter opener on the table by the front door, and we knew he was home by the sound of ripping envelopes. Mysterious boxes arrived all the time, and we never knew what was in them. Model trains, police scanners, computer games, who knows what else. I never got mail, so I was pretty jealous, and I remember him telling me, you have to send mail to get mail. All the empty boxes from the stuff he got mailed to him would accumulate in the basement for months until she yelled at him to throw them out. Years later, I discovered he had an enormous stamp and coin collection that was actually quite valuable. I only knew about it once he had to sell it off. That was in order to avoid bankruptcy due to her massive healthcare costs. She got pretty sick. On many Friday nights, we'd have Sabbath dinner and she'd drink a bottle of wine and get drunk. He hardly ever drank, but when he did, it was usually just a beer like Tsing Tao or Michelob. I mean, occasionally I'd see him order a Tom Collins, but I can't recall ever seeing him drunk. She insisted we celebrate Sabbath dinner, so every Friday she'd light the candles and say a prayer while waving her hands around the flame. He would bless the wine, which was actually usually just grape juice, and we'd each take a sip. Then he'd bless the challah and rip up the pieces and pass them around, and then we'd eat. And afterwards, they'd sometimes put on Israeli folk music and occasionally even dance in the living room. She drove me to a synagogue in the Bronx every week to study Judaism. We'd always get bagels nearby beforehand. And I remember after my bar mitzvah, I begged her to let me stop studying Jew stuff. I was just so over it, and she finally acquiesced. He was from Israel, but seemed completely apathetic about his Judaism. However, he knew everything about Jews in the Torah. You could ask him anything and he'd know the answer. I think Judaism was just so baked into his upbringing in Israel that he didn't need to practice. In 10th grade, I went to the barber shop and came home with her crew cut. She saw it and asked me, why are you so buttoned down? I don't understand why you're so conservative. I guess in retrospect, maybe the only way to rebel against someone who was so counterculture was to act like a square. He told me that in a relationship, there's always one person who loves the other person more. I asked him who it was in their relationship. He refused to answer. She spent a lot of time in her meditation room. The first time I ever smoked weed, I remember thinking, hmm, this smells a lot like my mom's meditation room. He owned every James Bond and Marx Brothers movie, just loved them to death. He loved showing me the scene at the racetrack where Chico sells Groucho a bunch of phony racing guides. 
and the Sean Connery Bond films, those were his favorites. He also loved Cyndi Lauper, Clint Eastwood, Stephen Wright, and Ronald Reagan. He would show me classic movie serials he saw at the movies when he was a kid, too. And they always ended at a cliffhanger, like the hero would go over the edge in a car, but in the next one, you'd find out, oh, he jumped out right before the car went over the cliff. Once, she woke up from a nap, and I told her that her face looked sad when she slept. And she got upset at that, kind of rightfully so, I guess. But come to think of it, she didn't smile a lot, actually. And one time, my therapist asked me if I do comedy because my mom was funny, and I responded, I don't think so. I don't really remember her laughing or even smiling at all. So, you know, that's definitely not why I do comedy. Huh. He hated paper trails. Must have been the lawyer in him. Whenever he threw out a piece of paper, he'd tear it up into little scraps first. Eventually, he bought a paper shredder and was extremely thrilled to own and use it. When I was in middle school, we had a health class where the teacher told us LSD could give you flashbacks, and 20 years later it might hit you and you could drive off the side of the road. Well, she picked me up from school that day and I asked her if she had ever taken LSD. Yes, she said. More than once, I asked. Yes, she said. So then I just buckled my seatbelt. He was a broke law student when they met, so for dates, he used to take her to night court. And he went on to prosecute racketeering and white-collar crime cases as an attorney and a prosecutor before going into private practice. I remember him describing one of his first cases in private practice. His client was being sued for rolling back the odometer on airplanes. Which, first of all, planes have odometers? I didn't even know that. But I remember something else about that. I could sense the defeat in his voice, like he had turned to the dark side. He was used to putting the bad guys behind bars, not defending them. She used to go to court to see him practice law occasionally, and she said he once fired a gun in a courtroom. He said he never fired it. He just waved it in the air. Once I was in college, I learned some stuff about her that I never knew. For example, she told me she'd been married to someone before my father, a photographer. And then she revealed she'd been briefly married before that, too. And one time, while we were driving on the highway, she told me about how she hitchhiked through Europe and the Middle East with another guy who was named Angus. As she spoke, I could see the sliding doors open and close in her mind. He loved quoting the song Forever Young by Bob Dylan. He cited its lyrics several times during toasts, including the one he gave at my sister's wedding. May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous, stand upright and be strong. May you stay forever young. When I was a child, we went shopping at Bloomingdale's and bought a bunch of stuff. But on the way out, she actually shoplifted a pair of sunglasses right in front of me. The next day, she made me watch as she put the sunglasses in an envelope and wrote a letter apologizing for the theft and sent them back to the store. When he was dying from bone cancer and on morphine, he had a home health care worker and he was convinced she was poisoning him in the night. He kept telling me about it and it took all my restraint to play along instead of explaining, she's not poisoning you, okay? Because she doesn't have to. God already did that. She would drive me into the city for cultural excursions. Sometimes we'd see matinees of musicals. I remember watching Patti LuPone in Masterclass and Nathan Lane in Guys and Dolls. 
I mean, I felt uncool being there, but also I was kind of blown away by their performances. She also took me to museums, and I would always suggest the Museum of Television and Radio because it didn't feel boring like most museums. It was kind of like if YouTube was a place before YouTube existed. I once asked him if it would be all right if I married a non-Jew. He replied, if I cared about whether or not you married a Jew, I wouldn't have moved to America. They would kiss in front of us. Not frequently, but every once in a while. More when I was younger, less as I got older. At least, that's how I remember it all. Death is like a hard drive that crashes. You still have questions, but now there's no way to retrieve the answers. They're just gone forever. bring in producer Jeremiah McVeigh to talk about what we just heard. Hey, Jeremiah. Did you ever end up sending mail as your dad suggested? I did. Never as much as him, but I think I got into like baseball cards and like ordering stuff like that. Or yeah, I I think I, Mm. I I realized that if you're not outputting anything, there's not going to be any inputting either. (laughs) I'm curious, just having heard this, I've, I've heard you say something before about the thing of, of your mother not being really someone who appreciated humor is my interpretation of that. And maybe that's why you, you became a comedian. But you also mentioned in there that your dad liked the Marx Brothers and would show it to you. Um, so which of those do you think really maybe had the most impact on your current career choice? Yeah, I mean, I think my dad showing me the Marx Brothers and like I definitely like loved Stephen Wright and Rita Rudner and and had this, you know, boisterous laugh that you could hear throughout the house when when he did think something was funny. So I think um, that was probably a bigger sort of influence on on me pursuing comedy if I had to pick between the two. But yeah, I don't. I think my mom was just a, a very like serious or more serious, you know, sort of in the content she would consume and like what she seemed to care about. And yeah, it wasn't like really like yucking it up or or laughing or watching comedies a lot. But I mean, I think, you know, you know, whatever Freudian stuff you want to get into, where if, you know, if, if all you do is see your mom not smiling, then maybe the thing you most desperately want to do is figure out a way to, you know, try to make people smile. That said, though, can you remember a particular time when your mother did seem to find something really funny and what that might have been? Hmm. Well, I mean, when Harry met Sally, she really liked that movie a lot. But even that, I don't know if it was the comedy as much as the characters, but like, I think it goes together. Um, Mm -hmm. Let me, let me think about it for a moment. Yeah. She just likes stuff that was serious, which, I mean, I guess I have a little bit of too, you know, it's like, obviously I I like being funny and telling jokes, but you know, as we've seen on, on this podcast, you know, it's like. Uh, to me, sometimes, you know, having to be funny all the time can feel a little bit like uh, claustrophobic, whereas like, you know, it's nice to be able to be a little more serious or not have to get laughs all the time, but, you know, try to say something that, you know, maybe you think has a, a little more depth or, or 
you know, meaningfulness behind it, but isn't going to, you know, deliver yucks. Sometimes that to me is sort of like the, you know, ideal of like, if you can get to a place where you're, you're getting laughs and, and making jokes, but also able to like communicate something that's a little more depthful at the same time, um, or something that people sticks with people and they remember days later, like that to me seems like you're really, you know, doing something impressive as a comedian. Now for some quickies. Art people sure do hate evil billionaires until it's time for the Sacklers to buy a wing at a museum or the Koch brothers to build a theater for the ballet. Then all of a sudden, eh, it seems to be okay. You can't be a lapsed Jew because, well, we kind of refuse to let anyone go. Once you're in, you're in. The history of magic. A man does a magic trick. Ooh, ah. A woman does a magic trick. Drown her! You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious. But if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rube's Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.